Good morning, church. We begin a new journey today, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, make sure you raise your hands, and our ushers will bring one to you so that you'll have the Word of God there before you. It is an eternal resource. The Word of God will last forever. It will never pass out of relevance. It will be important to God's people for eternity because it is the true declaration of who God is and what He wants for His people. And so uh, we want to have that word with us as we study together. Sometimes the Lord sneaks up on you a little bit. Um, it's a joyous day for me because um, we're, we're very happy to celebrate one year of life for Rosie, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, we also have a, somewhat of a heavy heart. This is the one-year anniversary of the passing of our sister Sandra. So please be in prayer for the Stokes family, for Luke and Blake and Sandy and Ed, um, as I'm sure this is going to be a tough day for them. I miss my sister. And it's, uh, it's not easy when people that you love pass away, but it makes it so much easier when you know where they're passing away to. And to know that she is in the arms of the Father today, that she is worshiping Him face-to-face you know, -face in spirit and in truth without any of the hindrances that hold back um, God's people here on earth is a great joy and gift to me. So um, let's be thinking about her and thinking about the Lord and what He does in the lives of sinner like, sinners like us when He chooses to redeem us and, uh, and change our hearts and turn us towards Him again. All right, I think we're all set with notes and pencils and things. Charles Hayden Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers the English language has ever known. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for about 38 years and is often called the Prince of Preachers. Historian A.P. Peabody remarked in his Guide to Americans Traveling Abroad in Europe that those who returned from England were often greeted with two questions. Did you see the Queen and did you hear Spurgeon preach? That's how influential this man was in the days that he filled the pulpit. But his incredibly influential um, personality, this wonderful man of God who pointed countless men and women to Christ, was not always jovial and positive. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon suffered from serious depression for a good portion of his life. The depression could hit him so intensely that he once said, referring to Job 7.15, he said, I could say with Job, my soul chooses strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from the misery of my spirit. Did that mean that Spurgeon was a bad Christian? That there were times in his life when things seemed so dark and the weight of life and the unanswered questions so burdened him that he wished that he was dead and with the Lord? Does that make him a bad Christian? No, it makes him a human. It makes him a human being. The book that we're going to begin studying this morning is determined to address what is so often the elephant in the room in our cheerful services. There are days when you will not be satisfied with this life that God has given you to live. How do we deal with the frustration of life? How do we deal with the reality of sin that is all around us? How do we deal with our lack of fulfillment the lack of justice in the world, the lack of beauty? How do we deal with our inabilities to make ourselves perfect and to refine our own hearts? Turn with me, if you're not there already, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is a book in your Bible that 
When you open your Bible, it might not fall naturally open to this place because it is often overlooked or even avoided by some Christians. So if you have a hard time finding it, open your Bible to the middle. You'll probably be in Psalms. Work your way to the right. You'll hit Proverbs. And after 31 chapters of Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes. Um, Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Stop there for a minute. The book starts off innocently enough, right? We begin with a quick description of what Ecclesiastes contains. These are the words of someone who will be referred to throughout the book as the preacher. The preacher. Now in the Hebrew language, the word preacher there is pronounced koholeth or koholet, depending on which age you think this book was written in. And the word literally means a collector of sentences. It can refer to someone who is an orator, someone who is a philosopher, someone who is a writer of Proverbs. So which one is it meaning here in this passage? Probably all of these titles and their meanings play into the definition. Here is someone with something to say. But Koholeth is not just anyone. He is described here in verse 1 as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who might fit that description? Who is the son of David and who has served as king in Jerusalem? The obvious answer is Solomon. And if you read straight through your Bible, you just came out of the book of Proverbs, which is a collection of wise and faithful sayings that Solomon either wrote or collected together into a great group, a great resource for his sons and for the nation of Israel so that it might guide their paths and lead them in the, the paths of righteousness. So it makes sense that this man who is writing this book to us is this wise individual Solomon who cared so much about the truth. He was the son of David. Son of David and Bathsheba. He was, of course, the second and greatest king. Uh, uh, second and uh, David was the second and greatest king of Israel. The first king to reign from the city of Jerusalem. Saul came before David, but he didn't reign in Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't established as the center, the locus of the Israelite people until David took the throne. Solomon was blessed to inherit a strong nation from his father, though it had its flaws. It was not perfect. But Solomon in his reign and his rule, by the guidance and direction and power of the Lord God, made Israel a much better place. Do you remember how he was able to do so? We read in 1 Kings chapter 3 of a defining moment early in Solomon's rule. Go ahead and turn with me there, if you will, in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 3. After something of a rocky beginning to his reign, Israel trying to figure out who would rule in David's place, there was some controversy with Solomon's brother Adonijah and Joab, one of the most powerful generals to have served underneath David. But Solomon got through those things. He was the man that God had anointed to rule the people of Israel. And God made sure that that came to pass. Now we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Can you imagine hearing that from the Lord God? First of all, can you imagine hearing anything from the Lord God? Vocally, but to hear the Lord say, Ask 
what I shall give you. And to know that He is a God of promise, what an incredible offer. Verse 6, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Solomon was a grown man by this time, but he's trying to express in humility how he sees himself. He doesn't feel ready or worthy to do this task. Verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Solomon saw the task that had been set before him, this great responsibility of leading God's chosen people whom he loves so much. He saw how great the task was and he saw his own limitations that he would struggle to do this job well if it was just based on his ability. And so what did he do? He asked the Lord God. Rather than asking for riches and wealth, rather than asking for power, rather than appealing to something that would be primarily a benefit to him, he asked the Lord God for wisdom that might primarily benefit God's people. He wanted to know specifically how to discern between good and evil. Look at that verse again there. I think it's verse 9. The primary sin in the Garden of Eden. You remember it? Adam and Eve ate from the one tree they were told they were not allowed to eat from. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In eating of that fruit, man and woman decided that though God was the only one with perfect knowledge, though God was the only one to be trusted to discern between what is good and evil, that they could do it better than Him. And from that point forward, mankind has stumbled in trying to discern for themselves what is good and what is evil. And so you see here the significance that Solomon, in his reply to God's great offer of blessing, specifically goes back to that moment in the garden and refers to his own fallen state as a son of Adam. He knows that if he's to rule well, he's got to be able to do what man cannot do apart from God. He needs to be able to discern good from evil. So God grants it to Solomon, who becomes the wisest man to have ever lived in the world up to that point. If we're going to be tackling some of life's greatest questions in this book of contemplation, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a book of contemplation. It's a book of thought. It's a book of difficult questions. It requires meditation. It requires thinking through questions over time. If we're going to take this journey, then we could have worse guides than Solomon, this one who is blessed with a godly wisdom. Turn back again to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities, say the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
things just got a little heavier, didn't they? We are two verses into the book, and the writer of Ecclesiastes has already declared that all of the material world that he lives in can be described as vanity. We're going to spend a lot more time on this word next week, but essentially it can be translated as vapor, something that appears to have form and void, but when you reach out to grab it, it's not really there. This world, this life that we live here on earth, is a life that is without real substance. It is unfulfilling. And if the wisest man ever looks upon the earth that he dwells in, measures its worth, and contemplates its great mysteries, and declares that it is all vanity, vapor, a mirage, then you know that the next 12 chapters is going to be a wild ride. As we assess the value of the world that we live in, and how man may find fulfillment in it. In so many ways, the book, of, the book of Ecclesiastes is a surprising addition to the canon of Scripture. By the time you get even five verses into it, you can already tell that it doesn't sound the same as other books that you have read. It doesn't seem to offer the same kind of confident, hopeful outlook on life that we find in so many other places of God's Word. Unlike the great men, many books of the Old Testament, the majority of which are focused on the life and the history of Israel, God's chosen nature, or nation, this book focuses in on the thoughts of one man. One man's ruminations, contemplations. And so the question we want to ask this morning, is Ecclesiastes a gloomy, skeptical commentary on the bleakness of human existence? Is it a book that is meant to just drive you into sadness? It may seem like it at times. Ecclesiastes 1.18 says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, sees that the more you know, the harder it is to be satisfied with this life that has so many problems and complications. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 16 through 18. The wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Life seems pointless to Solomon at different points in this book. Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 20. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. You're not going to find anybody writing that in their Hallmark card to a brother or a sister for encouragement. All right? All of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for equipping the saints. So we can't just write these sad lines off. They have meaning. They have purpose. But it's hard when you hear things like Ecclesiastes 11.8 that says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. The severity of the conclusions that are drawn by the preacher of Ecclesiastes have led to great confusion as to how we're to understand what God intends for us to hear from this book. The German reformer Martin Luther wrote commentary notes on Ecclesiastes in his German translation. And he says, I quote, This book is one which no one has ever completely mastered. 
Indeed, it has been so distorted by the miserable commentaries of many writers that it is almost a bigger job to purify and defend the author from the notions which have been smuggled into him that it is to show his real meaning in the text. So in other words, so many people have tried to make Ecclesiastes say what it's not actually saying, that we're going to have to spend some time undoing some of what you might have heard about the book of Ecclesiastes in order to truly understand what it means. And this quote has only gotten more true in the 450 years since Luther made those observations. Certain textual critics have tried to suggest that Ecclesiastes was written hundreds of years after King Solomon, that he didn't have anything to do with the writing of this book, and that somebody else wrote it and then tried to pass it off as Solomon's work. In other words, it's a forgery. I don't believe that, and you shouldn't either. Others have presented complicated theories suggesting that the book was a mashup of several authors' ideas, perhaps some of them being Solomon's, about the vanity of the life that we live. Buddhists and Nihilists have even tried to take these passages of Scripture and suggest that it's proof against the realities of Christian faith, that if this exists in the very Bible, that it contradicts the hope that we should have in Christ. So I'm going to argue over the course of our time in Ecclesiastes that this is not a depressing book, that this is not a hopeless and meaningless volume unless the worldliness that is exposed as vanity and vapor throughout its pages is the very place that you're looking to find your fulfillment. This doesn't have to be a depressing journey. It will tell us some of the hard realities of life but it will also point us to the one place where true fulfillment can be found. What are some of the ways that are so common in this world that those who have not God seek to find fulfillment? How has man tried to find that satisfaction that would make them happy and content? But how have they tried to do it apart from the leading of God? Is fulfillment to be found in riches and wealth? Is that where to, we're to find happiness? Can we buy happiness and contentment by amassing a great fortune and finding our security in material things? Almost everyone you ask that question is quick to say, oh, no, 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 no. You can't buy love. You can't buy happiness. And yet, how much of man's energy is spent trying to make their bank account grow? And I'm not just talking about enough to put shelter over the head and food on the table. I think Americans especially are liars when it comes to money. We say that we don't really care about it, but you look at the actions of people. You look at what they really invest their time and thought and focus in, and so much of it is spent seeking the dollar. Is that where we can expect to find contentment in wealth? Is fulfillment to be found in power? Can we gain a sense of satisfaction by attaining power and influence over others, over our circumstances, such that we can have great control over our lives. And we don't have to worry so much about those variables because we have come to control them. Is that how we find contentment? Is fulfillment to be found in leaving a strong and lasting legacy behind? Will we satisfy ourselves in so much as the world will not forget us when we are gone? Can we make our lives count for something beyond the 80 or so years we may live on this rock? Is fulfillment to be found in hard work and in our earthly accomplishments? 
Can our labor be satisfying and noble to such an extent that we might experience contentment and joy without end because of our hard work and our achievements? Is fulfillment to be found in gaining more knowledge? That sounds noble, doesn't it? Perhaps that's the key. If we can just get the right kind of wisdom, the right kind of special knowledge that not everyone has, maybe that will make us happy once and for all. I just need to read that book. I just need to hear that speaker. I just need to find that one truth that will unlock my potential and my happiness. You see, these are the ways that the world is seeking to answer the great questions of life. There is no shortage of philosophies, of man-made religions, of products and things that you can finance with a Visa or MasterCard that all tell you the answer to those questions. Can I find satisfaction is a resounding, yes, you can. It's just going to cost you $49.95 on three easy installments. No financing charges whatsoever. But the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes will help us see just how much of a mirage those pursuits really are. One by one, these philosophical answers will fail when the preacher follows them to their ends, when he achieves what so many people aspire to and then finds them absolutely wanting. Along the course of the journey, there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of honesty about the pointlessness of a life that is lived without the fear of God. But the preacher's not making his journey into the world so that he will find out what the world is about. He already knows what he's going to find. And that's something we need to acknowledge here at the beginning of the book. This is not Koholeth hoping that if he just tries all these things out, then maybe he will be fulfilled. He knows what he's getting himself into here. He wants to help us know that these paths that so many people walk hoping to find the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow are all paths that lead to dead ends. To understand the message of Ecclesiastes properly, it's going to help us to study the book with its end in view. So if you'll now take a moment to turn your scriptures to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We have many ancient fragments of the book of Ecclesiastes, some as old as around 190 BC. That's very old. Uh, moreover, we have many full manuscripts of this interesting and unique book. Most of them are in scroll form. Most of them are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Every, which of, uh, every one of which, the full manuscripts that we have, contain these last verses. That's important to know. Verses 8 through verse 12, or verses 8 through verse 14, are called the epilogue of, of the discussion. And many recent textual critics have tried to call into question how, many, or how authentic this book really is. They've insisted that the ending was not actually a part of the original. They just cannot seem to reconcile how this happy, hopeful ending can gel with the gloomy contents of the book. But these verses are, in fact, the key to understanding the intention of the author in writing the work in the first place. So read with me chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, study, uh, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Who do you think that shepherd is? They are given by the Lord. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see here in those final verses, we read that the preacher sought to find words of delight. And he uprightly wrote words of truth. He's describing what he just finished. He didn't write these things to depress us and to crush our hearts. He wrote them to delight us. And if we listen to where he is leading us and go where he directs, we can, we can finish this book with delight. We can finish this book with gladness in our hearts, even knowing that the world that we live in is a broken place and that there's despair all about us and that we will endure trials and hardships from time to time when we know the source of true confidence is not ourselves or our philosophies or our understandings or our ways of improving who we are. When we learn that our satisfaction is in Him, then all of the mirages of this world can be laid to rest. And we can simply focus on what matters, on this God who loves us eternally. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon knows that the heart of man is stubborn. And he often insists on experiencing a thing instead of taking someone's word for it. And so Ecclesiastes is a very intentional exercise whereby Koholeth, this preacher, takes that frustrating journey of experience on our behalf. He does it for us. He's putting these godless theories of fulfillment to the test so that hopefully you and I will not have to. This book is designed to spare us from the hardships of seeking the empty promises of the world. So the book of Ecclesiastes and the journey that it described plainly asks the question that is on the heart um, and the minds of, of many wandering souls. Is there any other way to fulfill the heart than through God's plan for us? The preacher determines to find out for himself, not only by speculation, but by experience for our sake. He seeks out wealth. Does that satisfy him? We'll see soon. He, he seeks out power. Does that float his boat? Does that make him happy? Does that solve his problems? Soon to be revealed. He seeks out all of the things that the godless world thinks is going to make a person happy. And we will learn from what he finds in his journeys. Now you might ask yourself, if Solomon is the writer of this book, which I firmly believe it was him, did he actually live out the things that he spoke about in the book of Ecclesiastes? It's really hard to know if this is an autobiographical story of a section of Solomon's life or whether this is a wisdom writing that was meant in some ways as an extended parable. The use of a character name for himself. He calls himself not Solomon throughout the story, but Koholeth, the preacher, the philosopher. It gives us the impression that we're reading of a character in a story 
not an autobiographical account of the literal things that Solomon did. However, it's very plausible that King Solomon had explored many of these concepts in reality. Of all the people who had lived to that point, King Solomon could have put these theories to the test. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that he has unsurpassed wisdom. We read that earlier. So he sought wisdom, and he had more than anybody else ever did. In 1 Kings 10, 16 through 20, it says that he had unsurpassed wealth more than anybody else had amassed in the world at the time that he lived. Many of us think that if we just had better salary, we'd be happier, but we won't know because we're not going to get the better salary. We're not going to be rich like these megastar athletes and these celebrities. So we might have even go to our grave wondering, well, what if I could have gotten all that money? Would it have made me happy? Solomon says, listen, I've had it all. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what it does for you. Let me tell you what it doesn't do for you. 1 Kings 9, 20 through 23 says that Solomon had vast numbers of servants that were tending to him. So he had power. He had control. He was the king of this great Israelite nation. 1 Kings 10, 14 through 29 shows us the huge scope of his building accomplishments, that he was able to construct the temple, the very place where the Spirit of God dwelled in all of its glory and majesty. Another temple would never be built like it. He achieved great and wondrous things. Was it enough for him? 1 Kings 4.32 says that he amassed 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 psalms. So this man of great wisdom also sought the wisdom of the world. He looked in places you would not look to try to find the answers of life. Did he find it there? Being king afforded Solomon the resources to take everything to their most extreme ends. And so to have his example, to have his testimony is a, is a great resource for us. We can say this man was able to take all of these theories to their ends. What did he find when he got there? But friends, I want us to be very careful here because the preacher's journey is set in front of us as an example to learn for, from, not an example to emulate. If you are a college student and you're embarking out into life for the first time on your own. Don't read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, well, Solomon was wise, and look what he did. He went out and experienced all the wildness of life. He tried out sin to see if sin would satisfy him. He went and sought all the money in the world to see if it would satisfy him. I probably ought to take that same journey. I've got to go sow my wild oats. I've got to go learn from experience whether the world has the answers to the questions that I'm looking for. Friends, you don't need to try heroin to know for a certain fact that it is a life ruiner, do you? You can look upon the shattered remnants of a person's broken life and you can see the suffering that they've had to endure from that great addiction. And you can learn from their example without ever having touched the drug yourself. You do not have to learn by experience. If you're wise, you don't really want to learn by experience. You want to see before you get yourself into what you're up against. So by design, the end of this journey is, is, is hopefully going to end, end up leading you back to where King Solomon begins. He starts as a believer. He starts as one who follows after the Lord God, but he feels the same depression that the world feels from time to time. If you're a believer here today and you felt depression, that's okay. 
those who have been redeemed are being sanctified day by day. God has made you perfect in justice and has put the righteousness of God into you, but there are still remnants of your brokenness that you will carry with you throughout the rest of your time here on earth. So if you're a believer and you trust the Lord God, but there are days when you get up and you don't want to sing praise. There are days when you get up and it's hard for you to even put clothes on and get out of the house because you get so sad about what you see around you. Don't think that you're not a real believer because of that. Instead, let the words of the preacher point you back where your focus belongs. That the end of it all is to fear God, to have a right, honorable relationship with Him, and to keep His commandments so that His will might come to pass in your life. Is Ecclesiastes a depressing book? It can be if you're approaching it from the wrong headspace. But in reality, the vanity that we see proclaimed again and again from its pages result in despair if our only option for fulfilling the questions of life are indeed the empty pursuits of the world. When we know that there is, in fact, a more excellent way, the succession of failures and disappointments ultimately shows us that there's only one place that fulfillment can be found, in the perfect will of God. Jesus is the perfect will of God. The law teaches us this. The law teaches us that there are things that we should do that we cannot do, right? God shows us that if we are going to be holy people, then we must never lie. We must be loving to others. We must not kill. We must not forsake what is good. We must keep every promise. And yet every human being in this, world, uh, in this room and in this world has proven by their own experience that the law is impossible for us to keep. And yet the world keeps trying to solve its own problems by its own efforts. Let the book of Ecclesiastes paint this picture for you that as long as you are trying to satisfy yourself with life, then you will not be satisfied. But insofar as you go to the source of life, God, this great and mighty creator, and you seek his direction and his guidance and you listen to what he has to say for you, the fulfillment that seems like such a fairy tale to many in the world can be something that you realize now, today. That you can have a peace and a hope in Jesus Christ that surpasses all understanding. C.H. Spurgeon, this preacher who struggled so mightily with depression and yet still desired to keep his eyes on Christ, yet still determined to serve the Lord God and to use his gifts for the benefit of the kingdom of God, says this, When you are bowed down beneath a heavy burden of sorrow, then take to worshiping the Lord, and especially to that kind of worshiping which lies in adoring God and in making a full surrender of yourself to the divine will. Most of the people who are going to try to make you content in this world are going to try to make you love yourself better. They're going to tell you that's the big problem in life is that people don't believe in themselves. They don't love themselves. They don't forgive themselves. But so far as we have put our focus and attention on our limited self, we will never find what we are looking for. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to take us on a journey to prove that to us and to help us to see that the answers to all of these big life questions are found not in us, not in the mirror, but they are found in the wonderful truths that God has revealed to us. 
Are you ready to have your idols dashed? As we have so often taken to love the, the temporary things of this world that distract us from these weighty questions. We often love the thing that just keeps us distracted long enough that we don't have to worry about these things and become sad. Are you ready to let those things fall away? Are you ready to face these questions head on and allow the Lord God to answer them on your behalf? Are you prepared to have your self-help ideas disproved? Some of the things we're going to talk about are things that you and I fall into the pattern of. Things that we, sometimes without even thinking about it, tend to rely on and then find ourselves disappointed in. Are you ready to see just how much you need God to answer these questions for you? This is going to be a, a, a wonderful journey. It's going to be a long journey. But I promise that as we go through this path, there's going to be a lot of sadness and depression, but I'm going to keep our focus on the end, that there is a solution to the problems that we struggle with and wrestle with in life. And thankfully, with the word open before us, those problems are, or the answers to those problems are near at hand. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to bless the series and to give us guidance as we study through this difficult but important book? God, we thank you for the great wisdom you have afforded to your children in the form of the Holy Spirit. Before you regenerated our hearts, we could not look upon this book and make much sense of it at all. Lord, unless a heart trusts you and has faith in you, then the things that you have revealed to us, these, these wonderful commands, these excellent precepts, they are baffling. They are a conundrum. But Father, through the Holy Spirit, we can know these things. We can understand them. We can apply them to life. And so I pray, God, that we would ready our hearts for it. I ask that you would help us to spend the time that is necessary to meditate through this great book, uh, that we would, we would not be afraid to ask those weighty, difficult questions, that we would not be like so many who, who can't stand the vexation that comes with greater wisdom, and so they just determine to stay simple and to think about things that don't matter all the day. But Father, I, I pray, God, that you would give us a, a greater joy than that. Help us to know that there is wonderful blessing and wisdom, and that as we draw near to you, uh, Lord, that we will start to see where true joy lies. We praise you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.